The fourweekmba.com is a leading resource of business insights. Top business schools around the world reference to it as the go-to place for business insights. Now it's podcast. Digital business models will break down for you how tech companies make money, what value propositions they offer, why they are successful, and what they're doing next. From Amazon, Google, Facebook, and many others, the Digital Business Models Podcast will give you the top business education you need to understand the digital business world. Whether you're an entrepreneur, an executive, or wanting to be an entrepreneur, the Digital Business Models Podcast is your go-to place for your business education. Today, I have the pleasure uh, to have with us uh, Greg Sarel, which is an international keynote speaker, advisor, and the author of a book which I loved, which is a best-selling book, which is called Mapping Innovation, a playbook for navigating a disruptive age. Thank you for joining me for this conversation, Greg. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's start from uh, your uh, background. Actually, how did you uh, get in love and how did you get uh, to, the, to the quest of understanding innovation and now uh, innovation um, you know, works? Well, I spent the majority of my adult life uh, managing companies. And I think anybody who's ever managed operations uh, has felt an incredible uh, pressure to innovate. What wasn't quite so clear was how, how you go about it. So uh, whenever I looked for guidance, it wasn't like there weren't enough ideas about innovation there were you know it seemed like everybody had an idea about innovation you you talk to some people and they start talking about uh design thinking and you look at it and it says okay well you focus on the needs of the end user and and then you work back and uh and uh, rapidly iterate and prototype towards a solution to 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 meet those needs and you think, wow, that really makes sense. And, and then you find that Steve Jobs swore by it and Ideo has made this fabulous design practice based on it. Stanford has built a, an entire school around it. And you think, wow, that re- really must be how, how you do it. And then you go and you read uh, Clayton Christensen and Innovator's Dilemma and Disruptive Innovation. And he says, that's how good companies go out of business because they focus too much on their customers and they don't notice when there's a basis, uh, a change in the basis of competition. So, <laughs> you know, how can both of those things be true? And then, you know, there's open innovation and lean startup and business model canvas and on and on and on. And it's like a confused jumble of innovation ideas. So, that's what sort of set me on my journey to to find an answer to those uh, you know questions is to to that very basic question of obviously we have a lot of great inno- innovation tools but when do you when do you use one rather than the other how do you integrate these tools into a uh, a, a, a really full toolbox that that you you can use to address different types of problems yep interesting and you know as you said there is a lot of uh, confusion chaos around innovation a lot of tools but then when it comes to really when you're an uh, a business person you try to really 
understand what's happening uh, in a very uh, quick way so that you can address the problem and actually understand whether you know the problem is internal or actually actually is more like uh, changing competition so you have to make uh, fast decisions but um, what are like hold on there Uh, just just one point of clarification i don't think you know innovation is about making quick decisions i mean some of the most important innovations uh you know play out over decades i think the fundamental problem is if you look at innovation versus other disciplines such as finance or marketing uh where there are clear tools and clear trade-offs between tools. I know you're a finance guy. I mean, every finance guy knows that you have debt solutions and equity solutions and knows that there's certain trade-offs between them. Uh, Where it seemed to me with innovation, we hadn't even really established what those trade-offs were. So that made it very difficult to make sensible decisions uh, around those different solutions. Yep. And as you pointed out in the book, it's uh, innovation. It's very long-term process, which takes uh, many people, many teams, many years. It's not something that happens uh, out of the box. But uh, what are some, uh, actually, this is probably probably the, the greatest myth that uh, most people have about uh, innovation. Or is there any other uh, misconception that people have about, have about uh, innovation? Yeah, well, I I think you really hit on something. I mean, all too often people, uh, uh, they confuse innovation with product development, right? So if you're talking about product development, well, that needs to, you know, obviously that has quite a bit of of time pressure. Uh, But um, a lot of things happen before you get to the product development stage. Um, If you're running, let's say, an internet business, before you can have an internet business, you have to have an internet. And that, quite, that, that, that takes quite a bit of engineering to build an internet. And it took a long time to build that internet before anybody could build uh, a, a, uh, a, a business based on, on internet technologies. And before you could build internet technologies, you needed some basic discoveries about um, information about uh, how transistors work, about how you make a, a, a microprocessor. So uh, all of that takes, takes quite a bit of time. And I think the biggest misconception is, is that uh, innovation ever happens as, uh, as a separate event. Real, uh, truly innovation, more broadly speaking, tends to be a set of handoffs between the discussion the discovery phase, the engineering phase, and then the transformation phase. And I think all too often we focus just on that late stage um, and, and forget about what, what comes before it. And I think that leads to a lot of missed opportunities because if you aren't looking upstream at those technologies, you're always going to be at least a few steps behind. Interesting point. And, in your book, you actually have a, a, a matrix that uh, you use to actually understand which stage uh, we are in the process of innovation, which is, of course, the, the innovation matrix. But uh, how does that work? I mean, uh, uh, it's very interesting the way you, you, uh, you know, work this out. And I think it's, it, it really helps you out in clarifying uh, in which stage of uh, the innovative process you are. So how does the innovation matrix work? 
Well, I think the key insight of the book is that innovation is really about solving problems, right? And innovation, the definition I give for innovation in the book is a novel solution to an important problem. So the first step to solving that problem is to classify what kind of problem it is. So the different quadrants in the matrix is, isn't supposed to be a different part of the process, but it's always supposed to be forward-looking. So the purpose of the in innovation matrix isn't to classify an innovation after it's happened. Quite often people ask me, well, which quadrant is this innovation, uh, you know, or this technology? And I always say, I don't know until I, I understand what problem they were trying to solve because the innovation matrix is designed to always be forward-looking. And the way it's set up is just to ask two basic questions about your problem. First is, uh, how well is the problem defined? For example, could you define a technical uh, specification for this particular problem? If you, can, if you can determine a technical specification, well, then that's a pretty well-defined problem. And the second question is, how well is the domain defined? Meaning, what set of skills do you need to solve this problem? Again, sometimes you can, you can define those, that, uh, those domains very, very well. You can think exactly the job descriptions you would use to help staff a, pro uh, to help staff a, a project like that. Sometimes it's not at all clear what domains uh, and, and quite often we see uh, uh, thing, things kind of spin their wheels when a domain is, is, is not defined. One of the case studies I used in the book was InnoSetup, which is this fantastic innovation platform. It's an open innovation platform, and it works really well when um, there's a very well-defined problem that nobody can seem to solve. Uh, and as it turns out, uh, most of the time, the reason those problems couldn't be solved was because uh, the, uh, the domains were poorly defined. And for example, somebody thought they thought this was a chemistry problem and none of the chemists could solve it. But somebody in, in some adjacent field, like a physicist or a, or a biologist, would come in and say, oh, we can, you know, we solve, we solve problems like that all the time. Here's how you solve it. And in, in some cases on InnoCentive, problems that had been around for decades were solved uh, within uh, a, a, just a, a couple of months. And some of them were, were really big, important problems. So that's really the power of the innovation matrix is by narrowing down what set of solutions or what set of strategies are best fit to solve this particular problem. Interesting. So it's really a tool to understand how you can actually innovate by going forward. And it's also uh, very interesting in, in the book, you point out that, you know, mostly people focus on two kinds of uh, innovation, which uh, get most of the, 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 the attention, which is the breakthrough innovation and uh, disruptive innovation that both are on, on the opposite side of the, the, the quadrant. But then you also point out that also sustaining innovation, which is based on a well-defined problem and well-defined, uh, let's say, domain, uh, it's also very, very important for, for us to keep going and growing 
when it comes to the to the to the business standpoint, but also to the innovation standpoint. Is that right? Right. Uh, people often deride uh, uh, sustaining innovation as incremental innovation, and uh, they think it's not exciting enough. But you know, Moore's law is is in- incremental innovation, and it's served us pretty well for the past 50 years. It created the digital revolution. So that's pretty good. The truth is, is about 70% of your value is going to come from sustaining innovations. Uh, and and that's, that's really where you want to play most of the time. That's why design thinking, which is really a, a sustaining innovation strategy, um, that's why design thinking has become so incredibly popular because for most problems uh, where you have a well-defined domain and a well-defined problem, it's an incredibly effective process. The problem is, of course, if, if it is not a sustaining innovation, then, then design thinking doesn't work that well. Um, if you can't define that problem very well, well, then that, that, you know, that sort of throws a wrench in the works. And if you can't define a domain very well, well, then you can't really define that multidisciplinary team that's supposed to execute uh, design thinking projects. So uh, once you, you're able to identify as something other than a sustaining innovation, then you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We need to, this is a different type of problem. We need to address this problem uh, differently than, than we normally would. That's uh, that's a great point, and you also point out because you know it, it's very easy to get confused in the business world when it comes to understanding what uh, tool to use. Uh, and you know, in many cases, we think that one tool can be used for any kind of scenario. Where, for instance, right now, tools like the Lean Startup, which are very popular, can be used in any kind of scenarios. But as you point out, like certain tools, certain tools like the Launchpad can actually be used. Uh, just for certain kind of innovation, like for instance, you point out that, uh, cor- correct me if I'm mistaken, but you point out that something like the launchpad, it's actually useful when the domain is well-defined, but then the problem is not well-defined because you need to actually understand it from a few visionary customers. How does that work? I mean, uh, Right, exactly that. I mean, lean startup methods are, are really, uh, you know, those are solutions looking for problems. And if you talk to Steve Blank, which I have on several occasions, you know, he is completely driven about customer discovery. He said, uh, he told me once when, when he, he first came up with all of this, he said he, he had retired and uh, he was in a ski lodge with his wife and, and kids and he was trying to write his autobiography. And he had a lessons learned section at the end of each chapter. And what he realized is that every time he stayed in the building, things tended to go quite poorly. And then when things started going quite poorly and he started getting out of the building to find out why they were going so poorly, things started going much better. Um, And that's because uh, when you're, you have a startup, um, you have a solution and you're going out and looking for the right problem. And uh, one of the most interesting things about the Lean Startup is when they started applying it uh, at, uh, at the uh, National Science Foundation to 
grantees. Now, these were incredibly successful and prominent scientists who had discovered something significant and were trying to build a business off of it. And as they went through the Lean Lean Launchpad process in in this program called I-Corps, every single one of them found that they had the wrong application. And because they were able to find that out quite early in the process, usually on the first day, uh, they saved a lot of time that would have been wasted. And they, I think, tripled the success rate of, uh, of those uh, commercialization grants simply by uh, understanding that they had a solution, but they had no idea what the problem was. And the trick was to really go and find out what that problem uh, that, that your solution can solve as soon as possible, because until you do that, you don't have a business. So really this is a framework more like on the disruptive innovation side where, where we do, of course, find the, uh, it's more like uh, finding the, the problem solution fit. I was having a conversation uh, a, few, a few weeks back with, with, uh, with uh, Ash Maria and he pointed out that you need to get in love with the, with the, with the problem. Uh, when you when you start using uh, a lean uh, startup uh, uh, framework, and then when it comes to instead uh, uh, breakthrough uh, innovation, it requires a, a totally different approach, right? Because uh, in this case, this scenario is the opposite, where the problem is well defined. So you're trying to solve, for instance, a, a huge, a big problem, but then the domain is not defined uh, at all. So how, do, how does it work in that case? What 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 is an example for you that best represent a breakthrough innovation way? you can actually organize your organization around it. Uh, well, my favorite story about that is, which I tell in the book, uh, came to me from one of the tech companies. They didn't want to be named. But they had a project to, um, and, and for all I know, the story may be uh, uh, apocryphal, but uh, they had a contract to develop a sensor that could uh, that could detect pollutants in water at very, very small concentrations. So they put together a team of really crack uh, chip designers, and they were throwing around ideas for about 45 minutes, how they're going to solve this very, very tough problem. So they understood the problem very, very well. They had a technical specification. They knew exactly uh, what problem they had to solve. But it's a very, very tough problem. And uh, about 45 minutes into it, the marine biologist who was um, assigned to their team, he comes in with a, with a bag of clams. And he drops them on the table, and everybody looks up, and he apologizes for being late. And they're looking at the clams. He said, oh, these. He said, well, you see, uh, these clams, you know, they can detect pollutants in water at very, very tiny concentrations, just a few parts per million. And when that happens, the, their shells uh, open. And so, so he said, so we don't need some super sophisticated chip that can detect uh, pollutants in water. We just need a, a very simple sensor that can detect when the clams open their shells. And so they say it was a million dollar contract. So they saved, you know, $999,000. And apparently they ate, ate the clams for dinner. So, I mean, that 
fact about clams, that's something that very few uh, chip designers would know. But pretty much every marine biologist would know that. So when you come up against a, a problem that you can't seem to be able to solve through conventional means, um, that means that you need to start searching domains very much the same way that in a lean startup process, you need to go search for problems. Yep, so it's, uh, it's the opposite but similar process. Um, as like uh, the business world has changed a lot in the, in the last uh, in the last decades, of course, uh, when we go when when you go to business school, one of the first frameworks that uh, uh, you know that you learn, of course, it's is the Porter uh, Five Forces, the SWOT analysis, and you you learn that uh, the basis of competition usually it's based on the Porter's Five Five Forces, and that's how you at least try to assess uh, the strategic analysis of, of a organization but uh, is it is this uh, are those tools i mean really uh, still useful today in in the modern uh, more like digital landscape yeah i think it's i think there's because uh, there's a real problem with the ideas behind competitive advantage i think that was much better suited to an earlier world where uh, that, that moved much much slower um things evolve much more quickly now and power is much more dispersed. So, uh, you know, and today we really compete in ecosystems, not so much these very well-structured industries. You know, what industry is Apple in? What industry is Amazon in? You know, um, what industry is even Tesla in? Is it the car industry? Is it the renewables industry? Um, and the problems that we need to solve today are so much more complex that nobody can really solve them on their own. So let me give you an example of how things have changed. And I think this is a very, very stark example. So in 1981, or 1980, actually, um, IBM realized that they had a, a real problem in their business they had missed out on the mini computer revolution and that had really shattered uh, IBM's dominance in the mainframe market, which they'd held at that point for uh, two decades. Uh, and they saw that, that now PCs, the, that personal computers, we didn't have the term PC in 1980, um, that these small personal computers were about to disrupt the mini computers and they had no way of getting into this market. They were nowhere. So they set up a skunk works in Boca Raton, Florida, completely separate from, uh, from the rest of IBM. And in less than a year, they developed and launched the PC, which of course was an, a major triumph and, and had a big, uh, a big effect on, on putting IBM back at the center of the technology industry. And that was very much in the Porter world, right? How do you dominate that, that value chain, right? How do you maximize your bargaining power throughout the, uh, the value chain? And that's how IBM succeeded with the PC. Today, IBM is at a similar point. Uh, computing is changing once again. Uh, the digital revolution has mostly, uh, mostly run its course. 
it's in its last days. The underlying technology is uh, not going to improve that much more. And, and the development of that technology has slowed to a basic crawl. So we're going to have to move to non-digital computing architectures that are potentially thousands, if not millions of times more powerful than digital technology. And one of those uh, platforms is called quantum computing. This is a very, very important technology for IBM. But they're taking exactly the opposite approach to the PC. Uh, they are, instead of you know, setting up a skunk work somewhere, they've set up a network that they call their, uh, their, their Q network, just around quantum computing, which involves universities, national labs, uh, potential end users, people like Samsung and Barclays Bank and uh, uh, JP Morgan Chase, as well as uh, a number of startups um, who are developing uh, tools and applications for quantum computing. So an absolutely different approach. And I, when I asked Bob Souter, who heads up uh, the quantum effort at, at, uh, at IBM, what he told me, he said, he said it's a much different kind of problem. Um, it's far more complex than, than the, the PC problem was. And we have to take this much more collaborative ecosystem type approach or um, – or, or we don't really have any chance of, of competing. And when I talk to other companies who are active in the space, they tell me the exact same thing. So I think that's how starkly the world has changed over the past 30, 40 years or so. Very interesting. So you're saying it's not, it's not possible anymore to control the, the value chain because the world has become a much more interconnected. And so what you, what you want to do is actually to open up to, uh, to allow the creation of those networks and ecosystems. So my, my thinking is right just, now, yep. Yeah, just, I, think it's even, I think it's even more than that. I think that very activity of, uh, that, uh, that Porter suggested of maximizing your bargaining power and, and, and exercising that bargaining power can actually hurt your position in the ecosystem. So just a few words about ecosystems. Um, an ecosystem is really a network of networks. And for the past, since 98, for over the past 20 years, we've really improved our understanding. This is actually what my new book, Cascades, uh, spends a lot of time explaining. We, we really understand network dynamics very, very well now. And I think when it comes to ecosystems, there are two basic rules you need to keep in mind. The first is, is that the power in an ecosystem emanates from the center, not from the top, as in a hierarchy or in a value chain. And two, that you move to the center by connecting out. Uh, and that's somewhat counterintuitive, but um, but it's 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 true. So I think every business needs to adapt to those basic new rules. So this uh, makes me thinking. Uh, does it mean that also right now, like business modeling and you know business model canvas, lean startup, really a really framework that we use to understand the the, the, the business world? But uh, are those tools as well? I mean. Uh, let's say becoming 
less relevant uh, when it comes to actually understanding ecosystems. And so we need a, a new kind of framework for, for understanding that. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that at all. I would say you know a a tool like the business model canvas. Uh, and by the way, Alex Osterwalder has been a, a friend for years. Um, and and a, as I mentioned in the book, I I talked to him a little bit about the uh, how he developed the business model canvas. But I think you can actually see the business model canvas as an initial map of the ecosystem. And if you think about the process of going through that sort of iteration through the business model canvas um, is looking to see where you can make connections. You know, there's uh, partners in there, you know, who, who are, who are you going to, who are going to be your partners? Um, and you go through and you find, uh, you know, who's willing to partner with you, uh, where you can make those connections. So I think the the business model canvas is a an absolutely great first step mm-hmm. to competing in an ecosystem driven world. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, that's what I meant. Like, uh, of course, the business model canvas is a first tool for mapping, like. Uh, of course, inside or outside, how does uh, your firm also make sense in, in a, an ecosystem? But then I guess probably new also tools will help us uh, better map uh, where we are in, in terms of building up those those uh, ecosystems. Uh, so probably that's something that it may it makes sense also to discuss with you in the future. Probably we're going to have, a, it, it would be nice to have a follow-up probably on, on Cascades so that we can uh, look at the, the, the whole ecosystem, uh, the, the business world from a more an ecosystem standpoint. Yeah, just a few words about Cascades. I talk quite a bit in Mapping Innovation about uh, how innovation is a process of discovery, engineering, and transformation. What Cascades does, it, it really focuses on that, the transformation at, angle of that and, uh, and explains how you get an idea to spread or how you scale an idea. Um, using lessons from social and political movements to apply them to corporate and organizational transformations. Yep. So can, can we say, can we finish this up by saying that, of course, being successful, like today, like building a successful business means uh, being able to build up uh, networks or like ecosystems rather than just uh, building up uh, a company like it was uh, back, back in the days. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, for, for starting a business is all about, you know, identifying a problem and, and addressing it. Um, but scaling that business, uh, more and more, y- you have to understand something about ecosystems and networks. Because uh, ecosystems and networks, that's, those, that's basically the platform through which uh, information travels. Got it. Thank you very much for joining me for this conversation, Greg. It was a pleasure. And, you know, I really hope uh, we're going to have a follow-up session really focusing just on ecosystems. It was a pleasure having you with me. All the pleasure is mine. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Digital Business Models Podcast, created by 4WeekMBA.com. 
the leading source of business insights for those wanting to become digital entrepreneurs. Go to fourweekmba.com for more top-tier business education.